the f*** you think is my opinion of it. I think it was Put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history. I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to ask is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, hey, that is where he's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Matt. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It runs cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. From the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on the MTR radio network and available on demand thanks to the Ustream network. It's the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Reminding you, the call-in number is 201-257-5650 if you want to get your point across. And I'm going to start off by prefacing I'm not going to wax poetically about how everything is just fine with the New York Mets. The 80 percenters say the future is going to be great, and you keep hearing that. It's okay not to be competitive now. These are the same people that are going to give the rationale every time a player is added to the New York Mets that it was a good move, the team's going in the right direction, things are going to be great. And the bottom line is that's not true. Let's, you know, let's let's look at let's look at a payroll for a second with the New York Mets. Sixty million dollars gets removed from the two thousand eleven payroll. Now we understand that the Wilpons are going through some serious financial trouble. And Sandy Alderson is here to try to manage the team the best he can to keep the team from losing any more money than it lost. If you look at last year, I mean it was pretty obvious that they lost a lot of money last year. And, you know, going into this year, you know, the expectations are going to be a lot more money lost. Now, with $60 million coming off the, pay- the payroll, you decide to put $12.5 million into it. And I understand, you know, it was the team's choice, maybe not 100% Sandy Alderson's choice, but the organization needed to operate at a lower payroll. Now, with that $12.5 million, and, I'll, and I'm going to summarize it by what the Mets did with $11.7 million of it, isn't necessarily the most wise moves that you could possibly make. And they, they do need to be second-guessed a little bit. Uh, you know, I know everybody says, hey, Sandy Alderson, look, he's doing everything great. Everything he does is gold. Hey, he signs this player. He adds this player. Great job, great job, great job. And listen, I'm not here to bash Sandy Alderson. There's some, there's some that have gone the other way and say that he's not a good general manager, he's not doing a good job with the Mets. Right now, that remains to be seen. There's no definite, definitive answer at this point of how good of a job he's doing. He was there one year, he inherited the payroll from Omar Minaya. 
2011 was Omar Minaya's team, just run by Sandy Alderson. If you look at some of the moves that he made, he didn't make anything major. You know, these bigger moves came towards the second half of the season when he traded Francisco Rodriguez and he traded Carlos Beltran. And they had the first draft under Sandy Alderson regime. And that's really his first chance to put a stamp on his team. Prior to that, really wasn't his team. Now he goes into this offseason, and Jose Reyes' situation aside, you know, we could debate all day on what, you know, how much they really wanted to keep him. I mean, I'm convinced that they really didn't have him in their plans. They would have taken him if he fallen into their lap or if he fell into their lap. But I don't think they had any intention of bringing back Jose Reyes. That being said, we're looking at $11.7 million that has been spent on new payroll going into the 2012 season. And we're going to start out by talking about Frank Francisco. He's the guy that Mets signed to be their closer this year. Now, remember this. Frank Francisco, coming into the 2012 season, has 49 career saves. And you want to add how many blown saves he has. Well, not very good. 21 blown saves in his career coming into this season. So he's 49 for 70 in save opportunities, which is not good. And you're going to trust this man to be your closer when all you hear in the offseason is how Sandy Alderson wanted to change the bullpen. He wanted the bullpen to be good. He feels the bullpen hurt him at the end of last year and really kept him from having the opportunity to win more games towards the end of the season. And, you know, if you're a Mets fan and you watch the second half of last season, you see how many games were blown in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. And, listen, that's a reason that the Mets didn't have success. But this year, if you look at some of the names that were on the free agent market, Frank Francisco wasn't the only option as a closer. And he wasn't the only option when it comes to not paying a guy a lot of money. I'm not saying they should have signed Heath Bell or Jonathan Papelbon or even Ryan Madsen for that matter, but I'll get to Madsen in a second. But the Mets decide to commit two years and $12 million to their payroll for 2012 and 2013 on Frank Francisco. And like I just said, the guy coming into this season has just 49 career saves out of 70, so he has 21 blown saves, and he has a history for not being healthy. He, hasn't, he had injury problems last year in Toronto. Prior to that, was on and off injured with the Texas Rangers. So you're trying to solidify the ninth inning. And what are you doing? You're, you're giving it to a guy who essentially has been hurt and hasn't gotten a job done when he's been the closer. And you pay him two years, $12 million, $6 million a season. Jonathan Broxton was out there. And I understand the talk, you know, the concern is the injury history last year with the Dodgers. But he signs with the Royals for one year and $7 million. I think would have been a better move for the Mets than Frank Francisco. Joe Nathan, who opened the offseason you know, pretty much right off the bat, signed with the Texas Rangers for two years and $14 million. So you're talking a million more a season for a guy who's proven a lot more in Joe Nathan. Madsen, who I just mentioned, it took a little while. But he ended up signing a one-year, $8.5 million contract with the Cincinnati Reds. Has more of a track record than Frank Francisco. And you want to even go on a cheaper route. You want, to, you want to go to a cheaper alternative that could have probably put up similar numbers to what we're expecting out of Frank Francisco. Fernando Rodney signs a one-year, $2 million contract with the Tampa Bay Rays. He might not even be the closer. 
He may be, but he may not be. But for $2 million, that would save $4 million more for the Mets to pursue other issues that they have with this team. So you commit yourself $6 million a year for two years for Frank Francisco. And there's still guys like Brad Lidge out there. Francisco Cordero, whose price is going to go down dramatically because it's the middle of January. They're still out there. And you committed yourself. You, you know, the team couldn't wait and gave Frank Francisco the two-year, $12 million contract. On top of it, John Roush is worth $3.5 million off the Mets payroll in 2012. Now, not a bad pitcher. He was pretty good about five years ago, but he's coming off one of his worst seasons with Toronto last year, 4.85 ERA last year. And all you hear is that he's a bad guy. You keep hearing he was a bad guy in a clubhouse. He wasn't really a guy to approach. You know, he didn't handle losing too well. Well, what do you think is going to happen with the 2012 Mets? You think they're winning 110 games? How's this guy going to feel when his team loses game after game in a highly competitive National League East division? You know, we tend to forget that every team in a division, or maybe we remember it a little too well, every team in a division has gotten better. The Washington Nationals could add Prince Fielder, and that might make him even better. They got Gio Gonzalez. The Braves are the Braves. The Phillies are the Phillies. And the Marlins, we know what they've done. And the New York Mets, with their limited payroll flexibility for this season, and they wanted to cap it out at $12.5 million or at 11.7 right now, have not made good investments in the players that they've added. You know, you're going to commit $3.5 million to a guy who gave up 11 home runs in 52 innings pitched last season for Toronto, and that's John Roush. And I told you about Francisco, who has not established himself as a closer. And you're looking at a guy who has 21 blown saves and 70 opportunities in his career, and he's worth two years and $12 million in the New York Mets' eyes. And then... If you followed my blog at all, the Bases Empty blog, I have been down on the Ronnie Cedeno signing before they even made it. I didn't understand why he was a candidate. I didn't understand why he was one of the guys the Mets were considering. They need flexibility. And I understand Ronnie Cedeno is a good defensive shortstop. He could catch the ball. He could play shortstop if Ruben Tejada gets hurt. But a team that's pinching pennies in all aspects of the game not just payroll-wise, but everywhere. They let 12 employees go. They cut a minor league baseball team. They you know, watch as members of their staff all over are leaving to go other places. And they commit $1.2 million for the 2012 season to Ronnie Cedeno. Other options were out there. They could have gotten a more veteran presence like a Ryan Terrio or Jack Wilson. Now, you could say Cedeno's a better defensive shortstop than Terrio, but Terrio gives you more options. Ronnie Cedeno will not be able to pinch hit. He's not a guy you could count on to come up in the eighth or ninth inning as a pinch hitter if he's not playing. He's your defensive replacement. You want to pinch hit for Ruben Tejada, you're going to have to use another bat off the bench and then use Cedeno for defense. Cedeno could play second base in the eighth or ninth inning for Daniel Murphy, but that's about it. We're not counting on him to get the big hit in the big spot. 
And yes, you're happy to have a guy just play shortstop, but it's just defensively. And I'm telling you, when you're pinching pennies, when you're talking about every dollar value on the 2012 Mets payroll meaning something, then it's a poor investment. And you put those three players together, and you have what I said is not a good investment. Let me ask you, the fans, you want to call in numbers 201-257-5650. Do you think that the money was spent wisely? Because I don't. Now, I wasn't expecting the big names. I wasn't expecting a big splash. I wasn't expecting the huge moves. Add this player, add this player, add another player. No. But if we're talking $11.7 million on three players, I think you would want to get a little more versatility. Now, you could say the bullpen that the Mets had at the end of the 2011 season with Jason Isringhausen and Bobby Parnell and Manny Acosta and Daniel Herrera and Pedro Beato is going to be a lot improved with Frank Francisco and John Roush and Ramon Ramirez. You're probably right. It's better. But was the money spent wisely? I don't think so. And you talk about Fernando Rodney signing for $2 million with Tampa Bay. I mean, you got John Roush for a million and a half more. And I don't know what you're going to get out of him. Maybe, maybe he has a resurgence. Maybe he comes back to where he was four years ago. But the guy had a 485 ERA last year, gave up 11 home runs in 52 innings. Can we look at that before we say it was a good signing? Now listen, spring training is going to come. We're going to see how he looks. The season's going to come. He's going to get the ball in the eighth inning, and we're going to see what happens. But coming off of a season that he did not pitch well, there might be a lot on his plate. And the rest of the bullpen may fill out. Frank Francisco could knock out 40 saves, and I posted about it in my blog, the dream season. Would have Frank Francisco with 40 saves, the bullpen doing a great job, Johan Santana returning to what he was before his latest injury. You know, Jason Bay, David Wright, Ike Davis all hitting 30 home runs. Lucas Duda is the fourth Mets player this year to hit 30 home runs. Daniel Murphy plays a flawless second base and hits 300. Ruben Tejada is one of the better shortstops in the National League. This is all for a fan to dream. And that's pretty much what it is right now. But as a, as a Met fan going into this season, you need all those things to go right or close to all of them to have a chance of competing. And a chance of competing is not a chance to win a division title. I said before, we look at the Atlanta Braves, who haven't done much this offseason, but are in good shape. They know they can compete. They may need a little more offense, but their pitching is going to be all right. Their bullpen is electric. The Florida Marlins, you may hope that there's some chemistry issues to hold them down, but they've assembled a very good team. Their pitching staff is going to look very good. Offensively, they're going to score runs. Jose Reyes is their leadoff batter. Hanley Ramirez may be very ready to have a big season this year, coming off of a bad year. He might be determined to prove that he's one of the elite players in the National League again. And then you go on to the Phillies, who could have done nothing at all this offseason and still been the favorites in the National League East. But they added Jonathan Papelbon to solidify their bullpen, to have a no-doubt lights-out closer, the first really since Brad Lidge had that big season the year they won the World Series. And you talk about the Nationals. 
And don't don't forget about them because they added Gio Gonzalez. I said all along, and I'm not, I'm not saying this as a Met fan. I'm saying this as an objective baseball person. I felt all along that Prince Fielder is going to end up in Washington. And once that happens, that team instantly gets some credibility. And we forget about Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper, who very well could contribute in 2012. And they got Ryan Zimmerman. And there are other pitchers may develop. Drew Storen's not a bad closer. I think at this point he's probably more uh, dependable than a Frank Francisco. So the Mets right now, talent-wise, should be picked to finish last place in the National League East. And I know that doesn't sit well with me. Isn't going to sit well with most Mets fans who are ready to get off of their, you know, their, you know, New York Giants football push whenever that ends. You know, they might love their Rangers right now in hockey who are doing a great job. You know, the New York Knicks, maybe there's some promise there. But eventually, all these sports are going to end. And the focus of a fan who is a fan of the New York Mets is going to have to come back to the reality and see what's going on with their New York Mets. And like I said, if things work out perfectly, and understand they never do, but if things work out perfectly, they could avoid last place. I mean, if all things, everything works on all cylinders, they might not be in bad shape. But I still think that $11.7 million, spent any way you want, could have been used better. They could have increased their depth in the outfield. Andres Torres, we hope he has a bounce-back season. He didn't play very well for the Giants last year. You hope he can rebound and be the Mets center fielder. But if he's not, you know, we may see Captain Kirk come up from Buffalo. And they say he's pretty much ready to be in the majors. Maybe that'll be a nice story for this season. Maybe he can get a spot on a bench and maybe be the fourth outfielder with a chance to start. But right now, what did what Kastuda and Jason Bay, who are going to be out there, they're going to be run out there 150 times this year if they're healthy. And you hope that translates into some numbers. You know this season is going to be big for a couple guys, for Jason Bay and Johan Santana. Jason Bay has had two very poor seasons, two very disappointing seasons with the Mets. I think a lot of fans have given up on him. But in the end, he's still going to be run out there for at least the better part of the season. And if he still struggles, if he still lacks the ability to hit the long ball, if he still struggles at City Field and on the road and goes nowhere near the 30-home run potential that he has that he's shown before he joined the New York Mets on his big contract, He's going to be sitting a lot towards the end of this season, and he's going to be sitting a lot next season. And Lucas Duda was a very good story for 2011. You know, it's 50 RBIs and limited time playing pretty much the second half of the season. You put his bat in the lineup for a full season, and I think under the radar he could produce. But I tell you, you're looking for way too many things to work out perfectly for the Mets to have a chance to compete in a 2012 season. I want to say congratulations to Barry Larkin, who was elected to Baseball's Hall of Fame. He's going to join Ron Santo, who was elected by the Veterans Committee. And really no, not much of a contest. Larkin pretty much 
you know, was the favorite of the writers being selected on 86% of the ballots. And I think we kind of knew that going in. He was a favorite to get in. Some of the other players actually received some, some good votes, some high votes. Uh, Jack Morris got 66% of the vote. You know, guys like Lee Smith, Jeff Bagwell, who I, I thought could have made it. Um, Tim Raines, Alan Trammell were very well mentioned amongst the, the baseball writers. And I, I like their chances coming into next year, except for one thing. The ballot's going to be a lot tougher next year with a lot of players first-time eligible. And I'll get into that in a little bit. People say Larkin is a no-doubt Hall of Famer, right? There's been some criticism. But most people will think he is. Most people will say, yes, he's a Hall of Famer. The first 30-30 shortstop guy who won the MVP in 1996. He led the Cincinnati Reds to their world championship in 1990. And most of his career, he was one of the best players on a team, if not the best. And he was a revolutionary among shortstops. Prior to him, you saw Cal Ripken, who was honored with a Hall of Fame induction. Ozzie Smith, who wasn't quite the player that Barry Larkin was. But I ask you this. You say, right now, who, does, who is Barry Larkin the closest to? And I have to say, it's a guy that's on the Hall of Fame ballot that didn't get elected this year. And that's Alan Trammell of the Detroit Tigers. And if you read my blog post on Bases Empty Blog, which I've said all along, we pop it through every day. I write something about baseball every single given day of this year. And I enjoy doing it. But I did a comparison because Alan Trammell is a guy that really goes under the radar until you look at his numbers. You know, if, I, if you were to ask Alan Trammell as opposed to Barry Larkin or a fan about Alan Trammell as opposed to Barry Larkin, who is he the most similar to? And gave you the two choices of Ozzie Smith or Cal Ripken. The answer unanimously, or more people than not, would probably say Ozzie Smith because they think of Trammell as a defensive shortstop who had a lot of longevity, played a long time, was an instrumental part of a lot of Detroit Tiger teams, but was never a top player. He was never a big-time power hitter like Cal Ripken was and might be a lot closer to Ozzie Smith. But numbers-wise would probably say he's closer to Cal Ripken than Ozzie Smith, and you may not know that by looking at the numbers. But when you compare the stats of Barry Larkin and Alan Trammell, you'll be surprised how close they are. Trammell played, played 20 years. Larkin played 19. Games played, Trammell, 22-93, Larkin, 21-80. At-bats, Trammell, 82-88. Larkin, 79-37. Runs, Larkin, 13-29 to 12-31. Hits, Trammell, 23-65 to 23-40. Doubles, Larkin, 441 to Trammell, 412. Home runs, Larkin, 198, Trammell, 185. It kind of seems pretty parallel, pretty similar. RBIs, Trammell, 1,003, 
Larkin 960. Batting average, Larkin 295, Trammell 285. OPS, where Larkin has an advantage, 815 to 767 for Trammell. Now, we know Larkin was a better base stealer, was probably a better was probably known as more of a better player on his team. But looking at those numbers, you cannot say that Alan Trammell and Barry Larkin aren't that similar. I mean, they got to be pretty close. they got to be, if they're ranked, let's say, ninth best shortstop or eighth best shortstop for Larkin, Trammell's got to be right behind them. And those of you who cast votes for baseball's Hall of Fame, I think started to realize that because of the jump in Alan Trammell's Hall of Fame votes. He went from 23% to 36% in one year. Now, I know a lot of players saw a jump in their votes, and it seemed like the writers were more inclined to vote for more than one player this year. But in the end, I think Trammell either is a Hall of Famer or there's going to be a lot of issues with Larkin making it because they're pretty close. You're looking at guys that played almost the exact same amount of time and almost put up the exact numbers. They both only won one World Series. I know Larkin won the MVP. I know Larkin went 30-30. But numbers don't lie. And I'm telling you, it was pretty close if you look at where these guys ranked. And Alan Trammell may pick up a lot of Hall of Fame votes next year because of Barry Larkin. Because the writers that were so convinced that Larkin was a Hall of Famer may have to look at the stat book and realize that Alan Trammell was Barry Larkin. He just started his career a decade earlier and may not have had all the publicity that a Larkin had for winning the MVP, for playing in Cincinnati. And it's weird because Detroit is known as a baseball city. So why couldn't they speak up? I know the Tigers writers and the Tigers media should be 100% behind Alan Trammell making the Hall of Fame. And I don't know if I am. Do I think I look at Alan Trammell as one of the best players in the game? Not really. Do I, compare, do I think that Alan Trammell was more influential than an Ozzie Smith? No. But when we compare him to Barry Larkin, who some people are now criticizing for making the Hall of Fame, I got to say it's pretty close. And if you could put Barry Larkin in the Hall of Fame, then I think you got to consider putting Alan Trammell in the Hall of Fame. Call in numbers 201-257-5650. I'm going to take about a 30-second break, and then I'll be back after this. Welcome back. It's the Pass Ball Show brought to you by John. Um, 
going to throw a number back out there to you, 201-257-5650. If you want to bring your opinion on anything that I've gone over or anything I've said in the past or posted about in my blog, I'll be glad to get your opinion. Um, that, uh, that sweeper was done by uh, Boy Meets Machine. Uh, a buddy of mine's the lead singer in there, and he, they've done a great job. They're based out of Long Branch, New Jersey. They've played in some places around there. They're actually going to be playing in McIntyre's over in Tom's River in the next month or so. As soon as we get some information on uh, the exact date, I'll let you know. But uh, an up-and-coming band was featured on um, 95.9 The Rat maybe within the last month. They were the uh, band of the week, and you actually got to hear a lot of their music over the air if you listen to The Rat at all. So uh, great job putting that together, and once again, um, thanks for getting that going. Uh, going going back to the Bases Empty blog, I'm going to recap a couple of things that I went over over the past week or so. And I did. I like to do these player comparisons because anybody that knows me knows that I'm a big stat guy. I throw numbers at you as much as I can. And the one thing that's great about it, you go back to the history of the game. You could go back as far as you want, or you could compare last year or the year before. And numbers tell such a huge story. And you'll realize that there's so many players that played similarly. Maybe in different eras, but they ended up coming back to be the same type of player. And with the Hall of Fame votes this week, I really had a good chance to go over a lot of the Hall of Fame candidates, a lot of guys on the ballot. And I did a good comparison of a couple guys who I thought were pretty similar. And one guy played with the Atlanta Braves almost his entire career, was one of the best players in the National League in the beginning part of the 80s, and that's Dale Murphy, who started his career as a catcher, became a very good center fielder. And if you go from 1980 to 1985, you got to say, along with Mike Schmidt, those are probably the top two offensive players in the National League. And I compared him to a guy that played a little later. The numbers ended up coming out pretty similar. Some were, some were, you know, in the other players' favor. But I compared him to Larry Walker, who started with the Montreal Expos, had probably his best years with the Colorado Rockies. But I did a Dale Murphy versus Larry Walker. Now, the first question you ask, because they were both on a Hall of Fame ballot, they both got, you know, about 20-something percent of the votes. So some writers feel like they're Hall of Famers. Do I think either one of them are a Hall of Famer? I say no. And the answer is the answer is no because Murphy unfortunately didn't carry on his greatness as long as he really could have. And initially I wanted to compare Dale Murphy to Don Manningly because both players kind of had the same type of careers. They started out, they came they were they were very highly touted, they jumped right into the mix. And instantly became the best players on their team. And then became one of the best players in each of their leagues. Now, unfortunately, a downfall for both of those players was the fact that they couldn't sustain their greatness over the course of a decade or more. And that's really what you're looking for in a Hall of Famer. You want to see a player that's amongst the best in the game for a decade or more. And that's why the Hall of Fame has the limit of needing 10 years of service in a game to be elected into the Hall of Fame as a player. Because a player that, you know, has, you know, five, six really good seasons isn't amongst the best of all time. So they use 10 years as a, as a criteria. Now, I think what they additionally have to do, is a, and it's a big deal, is to understand how long they sustain their success. 
Now, looking at Murray, Murphy, he was certainly one of the best players in the National League in the 1980s, and you cannot deny that. He maxed out by the end of the decade. He really wasn't the same player as he moved into Philadelphia and Colorado to finish his career. But he was very similar to Manningly, but he didn't because he didn't sustain a long enough dominance. Two-time MVP award, led the league at home runs in 1987. And there's no question he had a very good career. Now, if he could have sustained another four or five seasons at that clip, you know, home runs-wise, he would have had plenty. And I don't think there would be any question that Dale Murphy would be a Hall of Famer. Now, going back to Walker, Larry Walker was hurt by the steroid era. And there was two major reasons that Larry Walker was hurt by the steroid era. Number one, who knows? Everybody who played in that era is under question. Now, there's no evidence to say that Larry Walker was using steroids. I think, you know, you, you listen to the list of all the players that you think were using steroids, and Larry Walker doesn't come into your mind. But the fact that he played with players that used doesn't leave him out of the question as, of, as for where he, when he used or not. Now, I th- I, the way I look at it, and, and uh, Bob Costas says if there's any suspicion, if there's any doubt, leave him out. And I think that's a fair argument for the loyal baseball writer who's the baseball purist and doesn't want to put any player who ever used steroids in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think there's enough doubt to hold Larry Walker back from being Hall of Fame eligible. I don't think there's enough suspicion to think that Larry Walker might have been using steroids. But the second part of the steroid era that hurts Larry Walker in his you know, quest to become a Hall of Famer is the fact that his greatness, and he did have some really good seasons. At three out of four years, he hit like 360, 350, 330, 370. He had some unbelievable seasons with the Colorado Rockies. But that was all in the shadow of players that were using. You know, we're talking 98, 99, 2001. And nobody talks about Larry Walker's big seasons because they were marred by the other players like Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds. These players were having ridiculous seasons. These players were having seasons that were putting Walker's years to shame. So nobody looked back and realized how great of seasons that Larry Walker had. So as good as he was and as good as his seasons stand up, they probably weren't amongst the best at the time. And maybe and those other numbers were probably artificially enhanced. But you look back at you know Larry Walker and he put up great numbers. Now I did a comparison with him and Murphy. Games played, Murphy 2180 to 1988. Walker had more hits, 2160 to 2111. And like I said, when I compare two players, their their stats are going to be pretty similar. Walker had more doubles, 471 to 350, and I think that has a lot to do with him playing in Coors Field. Playing in Coors Field, those huge gaps, and the you know the mile high attitude, altitude, the fences that are pushed out, is great for a guy like Walker who's going to spray the ball to the gaps. Todd Helton over 500 doubles in his career, was a beneficiary of playing his home games at Coors Field. Home runs, Murphy, 398 to 383. 
RBIs, Walker 13-11 to 12-66. Like I said, it's still close. Average Walker, because of those huge average seasons that he had within about that four or five-year period, 313 to 265. And one thing you remember about Murphy, as good as a power hitter as he was, as much of a home run threat as he was, as much as pitchers didn't want to pitch to him, they knew that they could strike him out. Murphy had some seasons where he led the league in strikeouts. And you knew if you pitched him tough, there was a chance you could hang one and he'll hit it a mile. But there's also a chance you could strike him out. Larry Walker was more of the complete hitter. He was more of a hitter that was pretty hard to get out in a big spot because he could single and double you to death. And he could also run into one. You go to average, and I told you that Walker had a better average. OPS, because Walker you know, was a little, had a little more plate discipline, his walk-to-strikeout ratio was a lot more proportional than uh, Dale Murphy. OPS, Walker had a 965 to Murphy's 815. And he figured as good of a hitter as Murphy was in those brave lineups that didn't have a lot of protection. You know, it was occasionally a Bob Horner. There was occasionally a Chris Chambliss. Hey, good afternoon. I got a caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, this is Bill. I'm calling from uh, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. Hey, thanks for joining in, Bill. What do you got? Uh, you know, I, was, I couldn't agree with you more about uh, Dale Murphy and Don Mattingly. These are guys that had call up in career seasons if they had four or five more more good seasons. And, uh, you know, I, I remember as a Phillies fan watching Murphy at a very young age, just have his career be over. I remember uh, a particular game in Philadelphia, and I don't know if it was 91 or 92, and he booted two balls in the same inning, and, uh, you know, he just struck out and just looked like he was completely lost. He was only 34, 35 years old. And, you know, again, if he'd, if he'd had maybe even three more productive years of 30 home runs, there could have been a good argument for the Hall of Fame. Don Mattingly... Uh, same thing. I mean, here's the only Yankee captain not to go to go to at least go to a World Series, and the career was just too short. But the question I actually had for you was: Do you think, in the long term, players that play at places like Coors Field and, and some of these ballparks that are that are kind of suspect will uh, that will affect their legacy and their ability to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, I think that's an interesting point, Bill, because if you look at Coors Field and the way the gaps are set up there, and I kind of started to get into it a little bit. You know, a guy that's a pure gap hitter like a Larry Walker, you know, is going to get his 40, 50 doubles a season. If you look at what Todd Helton did over the course of his career, he was a similar hitter. And mm-hmm. I think players like players like that, their numbers are going to be increased because of the altitude. The altitude affects the, you know, affected the walls that they had to push back over there. So players like that are going to be able to, you know, have their 320, 330, and in Larry Walker's case, you know, 350, 360 seasons as far as a hitter. Now, when it comes to the Hall of Fame, I think in the end it's going to be what kind of numbers they compiled. And the reason that, you know, you're debating a Larry Walker or, you know, eventually a Todd Helton is because, you know, where their numbers compile with Hall of Famers. Now, can, can that actually go against them? I think I think you know a guy like Larry Walker who put up similar numbers to a Dale Murphy, you know might might be a little short of getting in. Now, right. would that be a difference in you know would that be would that hold them back at all? Not necessarily. I just think the numbers weren't compiled enough. Now, if you got a guy who hits you know 500 home runs, 
you know, and maybe is pu- is proven to be, you know, steroid free, you know, plays in Colorado, it's not necessarily going to hold them back. Yeah, I still question if there's something held over on them, though, because, you know, because they played there. I mean, I, I think of, of, of some of Larry Walker's years, I think of Todd Helton and the batting average, and the first thing people say, yeah, but he played half of those games in Colorado. And, and there is kind of a, you know, I don't want to compare it to somebody, well, yeah, you use steroids, but, but it kind of almost is the same the same conversation and the fact of, of just discounting the, the, the numbers. And I agree with you. If somebody hits 500 home runs, whether it's in, in Colorado or in Los Angeles, I think they're going to the Hall of Fame. But I just think for some of these fringe players, and somebody, maybe somebody that has 450 home runs in Colorado doesn't make it, but maybe somebody would have 450 home runs in, you know, in a, in a pitcher-friendly ballpark like City Field or, or, or Dodger Stadium would get in. Yeah, I hear you, man. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think uh, you think Jeff Bagwell's a Hall of Famer? No. I actually, I thought, I thought his numbers wise, he, I thought he was right on the fringe. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's, I think that's the kind of player you want to compare, like some guys, maybe some of the guys that played in Colorado too, because Bagwell, right. Bagwell did hit 450 home runs. He was, without a doubt, the best player on the Astros. You know, you'd say a guy like Biggio was gritty and a. You know, the heart and soul of the team, but Bagwell was the best player. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look at I look at Bagwell as a guy who may have had may have a better chance of making a Hall of Fame. But you know, with the ballot the way it's set up next year with all the player all the players that are eligible, I think his you know the percentage of votes that he's going to get is going to drop off considerably. Yeah, and he may get in the long term. I, I personally don't see him as a Hall of Famer, but I'm a very hard critic. Like I, I think that. It's it's terrible that Blylevin made the Hall of Fame. I agree. And a lot of people disagree with me on that. So you, you can, but with that opinion, you can kind of see where I come from on, on the Hall of Fame. But um, I, I think I think Bagwell will get in at some point. It certainly won't be next year, though. At least in my opinion. Yeah, going back to the Hall of Fame. I mean, I I, I could think, I could think of a handful of players that have made it over the last like five to seven years that are questionable as far as Hall of Fame worthy, like a Jim Rice, a Andre Dawson. And I think even a Goose Gossage wasn't, you know, he was good. He was a very good closer, but I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. And I think that some of these players got the extra votes and they got the extra credit from the baseball writers because they played in an era that was before the steroids. And the writers voted for them as opposed to voting for, you know, Rafael Palmero or Mark McGuire as, you know, a way of wanting to honor somebody as opposed to nobody. And I think, you know, maybe... Maybe if the writers voted 10 years ago or 12 years ago or 15 years ago, these same players that made the Hall of Fame would not have made it then. I completely agree with you. I wrote an article actually two or three years ago that I took a ton of heat for uh, from my readers, and it compared Mike Schmidt to Jim Rice. And I had people actually write comments on the article and everything else. How can you compare the two of them? Schmidt's one of the greatest third basemen that ever lived. You know, you're, you're trying to compare stats, this, that, whatever. Um, and, and you can't compare the two. And I, and I, I was like, no, you can compare the two because I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, for a team or for a decade. I'm talking about the Hall of Fame. And when you talk to the Hall of Fame, you speak up to the best of the best of the best. And I have to now compare this player to Babe Ruth. I have to compare this player to Lou Gehrig. I have to compare this player to Mike Schmidt and, and others like that. And I just I felt as though Jim Rice didn't, didn't add up and didn't measure up to be in the Hall of Fame either. Yeah, I mean, if you, ever, if you get a chance, take a look at their two stats. They played the exact number of seasons. I mean, everything is very comparable. Now, our number, our number-wise, are they really that similar? 
I'm sorry, say that again? The numbers numbers rise wise uh, as far as no. power numbers, they weren't very similar. No. Yeah. No, they weren't nor nor RBIs. There was there were a bunch of things in there that just that just didn't add up and uh it's been a couple of years since I wrote that article to remember the real details of all of it. But uh yeah, they, they just didn't we put it on paper and put the two next to each other, they just didn't add up. Yeah, no, they def they definitely didn't, and that's you know that's I think more of a, a tribute to the writers wanter, wanting to honor some player, and maybe right. maybe making it more of a of a token of the fact that they played the game clean, mm-hmm. and you know they you know rather than you know racking up votes for Rafael Palmero and Mark McGuire, and then you know next year with Bonds and Sosa and Clemens and everybody coming out, they want to honor a player that they know was the best symbol, you know maybe a best symbol of the game. And I even look back at Jim Rice as far as he was never one of the best players in the American League either. No. He, he was a good player. He, he, he did a very good job for the Red Sox. He, he had an outstanding career. You know, I have, no yeah, problem gonna, with, yeah. I have no problem with him getting his number retired and honored by the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the guy, you know, if you put his numbers up, they, they, they just don't match up with the Hall of Famers. And, you, you know, you made a good point, and I'm sure you did in your article, that, you know, Jim Rice is not up there with – you know, the guys that, you know, you know, you think of uh, Hank Aaron or, you know, you know, anybody that's in the Hall of Fame, they weren't, they didn't have the same impact. You know, he didn't have the same impact as guys like that had. Yeah, and to your point, I'm not so sure that Jim Rice was ever the best player on his team. Yeah, 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 and that's, that's a very, that's a very good point. I mean, if you think, I mean, even a guy like Bill Buckner, who, you know, took, sure. all, took all the heat that he did for Boston for making that error in 1986, mm-hmm. uh, he was probably a more complete player. And you know if if oh, he absolutely. if he if he played maybe about three four more seasons maybe at the top of his game, he would be very you know very close to a Hall of Famer. I think he had something like twenty seven or twenty eight hundred career hits. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know he was one of the first players to have two hundred or more hits in each you know both the American and National League. Right. And you know unfortunately he get he takes a lot of you know criticism for what happened in nineteen eighty six, but you know right. a lot of, a lot of times you know you don't realize how how good of a player he was, and without you know without a guy like Buckner. You know the '80s Red Sox wouldn't have been anywhere near what they were. They may have been able to do it without a Jim Rice. Right. You can always find a corner outfielder. Yeah. Absolutely. If you think of guys like Don Baylor and you know, of course, Dwight mm-hmm. Evans. You know, you plug somebody in there, it's going to hit 30 home runs a season, and it's a lot e- more easier to find than you know a, a really an all-around player like Bill Buckner was. Right. All right, man. Thanks a lot, Bill. We'll hopefully talk to yeah, you thank soon. Thank you for the call. All right, yeah. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. All right. No problem, man. Take care. Great show. Thanks. All right, that right, was Bill. Um, going back to what I was saying about Larry Walker, I don't look at Larry Walker as you know a Hall of Famer, nor do I do Dale Murphy. And segueing that into another player that I talked about in my blog, Jorge Posada is about to announce his retirement sometime in the next week or so. And all I've gotten from, you know, and I don't know if it's all Yankee fans. And I don't want to say it's just Yankee fans because they had their player and they love their guy. I mean, there's there's been some baseball fans that aren't necessarily fans of the Yankees that are stressing how Jorge Posada is a Hall of Famer. And I think, unfortunately, and this isn't my Mets fan bias saying this. This is as an objective baseball person or a personality or somebody representing the game right now. I think Jorge is a little short. And if you compare him to the great catchers, and it's hard to do that. You know, it's hard to compare Jorge Posada to Johnny Bench or Carlton Fisk or even Gary Carter, for that matter. 
Because remember, not only did Carter put up numbers in the end, the numbers were there, but Carter was also the heart and soul of the Montreal Expo teams and a very good contributor to the New York Mets teams. Posada, the Yankees could have won without Jorge Posada. You know, he had a very great career. I hope the Yankees have a good day for him. I hope they retire his number. I hope they have a nice Jorge Posada day at Yankee Stadium this year because that will all be very deserved. But five years from now, I can't see him getting any more than a 9.6% on the ballot that Bernie Williams got this year. And like I said, both were very good Yankees. But I can't compare Jorge Posada to the greatest catchers of all time, especially with what's happened in the last 20, 25 years. I mean, a guy like Mike Piazza, who's going to be on the ballot next year, you know, he's not Mike Piazza. And then going to the best catchers in Yankee history, there's Yogi Berra, there's Bill Dickey. And I'm not even quite sure Posada is the third best catcher the Yankee has ever had. There's a guy named Munson that died tragically in 1979 that was right in the middle of his career. And if you look at his numbers, what he had accumulated up until 1979, he was building longevity. And I know he was, falling, he, he was going away from being a catcher. I'm sure into the 80s he may have been a converted first baseman or a designated hitter. But here's a guy who could drive in 100 runs really without hitting 30 home runs. And if you really extrapolated his career stats to what would be an average career, I think Thurman Munson ranks higher in Yankee history as far as catchers than Jorge Posada. Now, I don't know if Thurman Munson would have accomplished enough to be a Hall of Famer. But I just think that Jorge Posada, unfortunately, would have, you know, is just going to be a little short. I was looking through the numbers and trying to find a most comparable player to Posada. And it's hard, like I said, to compare him to a Carter or a Fisk. But a guy that played a very good career, mostly with the Detroit Tigers, Lance Parrish, is probably the most comparable. And you get a chance, just look up his numbers. And, you know, Lance Parrish was a very good catcher. He was, a, you know, finally a five or six hitter. Posada was a better hitter average-wise. Parrish had a little more home runs. But when Lance Parrish was available to, or I'm sorry, eligible to be a Hall of Famer for the first time, he received 1.7% of the vote, which is kind of sad for a guy that, you know, played as long and as well as he did. And listen, I think Posada will receive closer to what Bernie Williams got on his first ballot. He'll stick around. You know, he's 15 years eligible. He'll stick around for the majority of the time, if not the entire 15 years. But I think when it comes down to it, unfortunately, he's short. One thing that could help him, and I'm hoping is not true, you know, if Mike Piazza is somehow implicated without a doubt to have used steroids and is held off as a Hall of Famer, then a guy like Posada may increase his chances. But it takes me into the final thing I'm going to go over. That's a 2013 Hall of Fame ballot, which I think is going to be huge this year. You know, you got guys like Piazza and Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Kurt Schilling and Craig Biggio. You got holdovers, Jack Morris, Jeff Bagwell, Lee Smith, Tim Raines, Alan Trammell, who I went over before, Edgar Martinez, Fred McGriff, and then other guys who are going to either fall a little short or are held back because of steroids, Larry Walker, Mark McGuire, Don Mattingly, Dale Murphy, and Bernie Williams. It's going to be one of the more exciting ballots, and I could probably do a whole show evaluating how good or how bad 
you know, the, their chances are to make the Hall of Fame. But like I said, another great show. I'll end it with a Casey Stengel quote. He says, never make predictions. Never make predictions, especially about the future. Hope to catch you next week. Enjoy the show. Young man, they got his first big league hit ever. Yeah.